Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Cricket with an Accent. We've been quiet on this front for a while. I'm trying to line up some good guests. And plus, there's a big season coming up, so I also needed a break. So this is, again, Sake Bali hosting the show. And today, uh, I have a guest from ESPN Crick Info, someone I've been trying to get here uh, for some quite some time. He's, he's a busy... He's a busy, you know, busy writer because uh, there's a lot of cricket going on in England, and uh, it's a match roller. Everybody's up and coming favorite writer these days, and you know, hopefully, he'll make my questions more meaningful, and you guys will be, you know, will have a listening delight. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you very much, Sakib, and yeah, uh, uh, I apologize for how long it's taken to to, to nail me down. I've been as you say, a busy man with the uh, the start of the, the county championship season over here and sort of building up to, uh, yeah, a typically busy English domestic summer. So, uh, yeah, um, but very glad to be here uh, and, yeah, looking forward to chatting. No, no, believe me, and that wasn't you know, a rant or a complaint. It was just like, you know, because you, you work <laughs> in cricket. Cricket is my, you know, passion along with tennis, but I have a day job. So to make these things work, you know, a lot of things have to happen plus different time zones. So I'm I'm very delighted that we are actually doing it today. And um, again, you know, on Twitter, you have a presence. You write for one of the most prolific and quality sites out there. So really no introduction on that regard. But in these podcasts, it's more like a magazine. One of my good friends said, you know, (laughs) there's like the whole analysis that's going on. Like, you know, I stay away from that because that's not my expertise. I rather listen to someone who is, you know, breaking down stats. But this is more like the interview form. So for the listeners here, what's your association with the game? And uh, what was the path? for Matt Roller to be, you know, <laughs> being on everyone's laptop and iPhone reading your pieces. So, you know, just fill us in, you know, for a few minutes what the background is with you and cricket. Well, that's a good question. I mean, I don't know if I've quite um, reached that status quite yet, but uh, I'm, I'm flattered if, if that's your analysis. Um, I mean, I've, I've always loved the game, really. I think uh, I got into it through a, a, in the way that a lot of people do over here through a, a father who, uh, was a keen cricket follower himself, still is uh, to this day. Uh, took me took me to games growing up. Uh, grew up uh, in a, in a nearer city called Salisbury in the south of England, so I used to go and watch uh, watch Hampshire games at the Aegeus Bowl in Southampton, which was about an hour away from where I lived, and sort of fell in love with the game from there. Really, um, I can't really remember a time in my life before I was uh, very into cricket. I'm part of the generation that sort of just about. Uh, almost missed the 2005 Ashes because uh, that's a sort of seminal series over here. It was the last one on free-to-air TV uh, and was obviously a famous series which England won in, in dramatic circumstances the first time they won it for a long time. But I almost came into the game slightly later than that, I'd say, in terms of uh, supporting it, supporting England, following uh, the game closely. Um, I think the first summer I sort of remembered being sort of uh, actively following the game and sort of knowing everything that happened was 2008 um, when I would have been 10. Uh, But from there, uh, yeah, I've always, always uh, followed the game and and loved it. I was never much good as a player. So I think uh, watching it was the the best way into it for me. Uh, And I've always been a particular fan of one day and limited overs cricket. I think when England won the uh, the World T20, as it was called then, in uh, 2010 in the Caribbean. That was a real seminal moment for me and in, in sort of how I followed the game, um, seeing these guys who had very recently been, been playing county cricket, um, flourishing on the international stage, who I, I'd sort of grown to, grown to enjoy watching, um, really sort of hooked me in. And I think, yeah, the, uh, the ability to watch a game and consume it within three hours, which is, the general length of county games over here and to follow the IPL as well, which was, you know, obviously kicking off around that time uh, has hooked me. And then, uh, yeah, luckily, you know, um, I'm fortunate enough to have been able to pursue it as a career. I I was a sort of, uh, while I was at university, I didn't necessarily think this was the route I would go down, but um, I I was always very keen to to write, Um, did a lot of student journalism when I was there. Um, And in my penultimate year, sort of, as with most people in the game, there's a certain amount of luck. and uh, Someone taking a bit of a punt on you, but a guy called David Hopps, uh, who is a, a former Guardian journalist who was at Crick Info for a long time, uh, was was seeking out some freelancers. Uh, someone I knew uh, who, who I'd sort of sent a, uh, a chancy email to called Tim Wigmore. He writes for The Telegraph, put me in touch with him. 
uh, and I covered a few games. They liked what I did. Uh, things sort of spiralled from there. There was a, a job going at one point, uh, which I applied for and been full-time since uh, mid-2019. Uh, so, yeah, I've been been absolutely loving it. And, uh, yeah, I'm lucky enough to uh, sort of cover something I love uh, for a living. And that's That's been my staple line whenever I've talked to the likes of, you know, folks from your profession. You know, I always say, and this is like a cliche, but true, like guys like me, you know, we, you know, we end up doing podcasts or write blogs and, you know, and the real blokes like you guys, you know, you go and cover out the profession. So was writing something that also, was it accidental? I mean, you know, to write uh, as a professional, you know, for, you know, for a living to cover your one of your favorite sports. So what was the writing connection? I mean, were you always keeping tabs? I know you're probably a lot younger than me, probably from the laptop mm-hmm. generation. From my time, we were like, literally, you know, writing scorecards and I was not a writer, but, you know, there was a way maintaining scrapbooks, taking pictures from magazines. So you are more like the modern generation. So what was, is there a recollection when the first writing uh, incident happened in, in, in your arc? And then here we are. It's a good question. I, I definitely remember writing blogs as a teenager, sort of coming out with, uh, you know, my own, my own hot takes or whatever and leafing through magazines. And yeah, as you say, scorecards, all that sort of thing. Um, I, I, I'm a big uh, football fan or soccer fan as well. Um, so sort of remember doing, doing similar stuff with that, you know, um, reading all the yearbooks, love that sort of thing growing up. Uh, yeah, sort of early teens, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I, d- I don't know when the, when the moment would have been. I remember, you know, obviously um, I sort of remember writing essays at school and that sort of thing and always felt I had some sort of um, flair or talent or whatever for for uh, for writing and decided that at one point I would sort of throw myself into it I've always been sort of quite nosy and curious as well so I, I think the um the combination of being able to to write to um have the sort of journalistic side of my profession plus the just the sheer enjoyment of being able to to um go and watch games of cricket and uh, sort of muse as I wish on them is uh yeah it's something that's always appealed to me and yeah I'm as I say, very lucky to do what I do. Absolutely. And I've talked to like some of the, you know, journalists who are like now senior editors, especially in India, and the way they change, they covered the game, you know, we've come a long way, just like in anything, any walk of society, you know, things have got more sanitized, more refined. And I guess, you know, that's part of the evolution. So just looking at when you came into the profession, you've been doing it for some time. I mean, was there any innocence lost? Like, you know, these are the guys, mm-hmm. your heroes, you know, and now you're mixing it up with them. Pretty soon you just put your professional hat on and, you know, in the Monday talking to Root, one day sitting in a conference with Coley or, you know, Stokes. <laughs> so so what is that transition like? I'm sure it's, it's you, you're way beyond that, but for any young listener who may want to, you know, like, uh, you know, gather that kind of part of your ex- experience because there could be a budding writer listening to this podcast somewhere. Sure. I mean, I, I think there's there's still an element of it. I mean, you know, um, personally, you know, I have certain certain players or whatever within uh, domestic cricket or whatever who I, I would you know, happily go for a drink with and wouldn't wouldn't think much of it. Um, and certain contacts within the game, similarly, where you know you, you um, sort of strike up friendships or whatever with people that you work with that um, you know you probably read their work or listened to them speak in the in the past, but uh, you know become quite close to. Um, but equally, there are still times, you know, doing doing press conferences back here with whoever it is on Zoom out in India earlier this year with Owen Morgan or Ben Stokes or someone like that. It's still a certain, you know, yeah, it still gets the heart racing to a certain extent. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, you know, I think with as with most things, it's a, a varies from day to day. I think you have some days where you go and cover a game and, um, you know, it's uh, just in the same way that people get up and go to work and, aren't necessarily always confused about it. You do have the similar thing where, you know, it might be a rainy day and uh, not much prospect of play and not much enthusiasm to go. But equally, you know, I covered, a, covered the final day of a county game yesterday and sort of was, yeah, definitely thinking to myself when I was walking home from the Oval, you know, God, I'm extremely lucky to be uh, to be able to do this and sort of take this in on a, on a daily basis. And, uh, you know, uh, have, have fun chats with fun people during the the course of a day in a press box and then uh, be able to write up a, a very interesting day of cricket. No, no, that, that's wonderful. I mean, I'm always envious. Again, I can't write to save my life, but again, that lifestyle, <laughs> I'll, I'll do anything, you know, go for life or to take me back 20 years, maybe cover it professionally. But 
So let, let me ask you this, you know, there has been a lot made about, you know, the modernization of cricket in England, you know, since the 2015 World Cup exit, we know the white ball fortunes and the commitment, England is a world-class outfit in all three formats. So is there a correlation, according to you, for the health of the game means it's popular among the fans. So as young writers coming up, what's that space in England covering cricket? I know in India, I'm sure you know a lot of colleagues and you, India is the center of cricket universe in terms of the popularity, but where is that? Uh, what, what's the measuring stick in England? I mean, you know, like is, I know cricket is not nowhere near football, but uh, let's talk about, you know, what space cricket occupies from fans and journalism and, you know, how exciting it is to cover uh, the fortune of this English cricket uh, team in the domestic season. Yeah, I mean, well, there's quite a bit to unpack there. I mean, I, I'd say that cricket um, within the UK still remains a relatively niche thing, and that's something that um, stems from primarily the fact that um, it's been on pay-to-watch pay, pay um, television channels since 2005, um, which, you know, it's something that um, just do doesn't help visibility at all. So the, the way, uh, yeah, the broadcasting works here it used to be on Channel 4, which is one of the terrestrial stations. So every every TV in the um, in the country has Channel 4 on it. Um, it's free to watch, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas since 2005, it's uh, basically all, all of England's games have been on um, Sky Sports, uh, which, you know, they cover the game extremely well. Um, they do some extremely high-level analysis. They have lots of former England captains as guests and all that sort of thing. But equally, it's a very expensive thing. It costs people about 50, 50 pounds a month. So what's that, 70-odd dollars? Um, and, you know, that's an extremely uh, big barrier given the percentage of people in the UK where the subscription is is low in the first place. And a lot of those will be subscribing to watch football or rugby or something else rather than cricket specifically. So there definitely has been a decline in its popularity over the past sort of 15, 16 years. Um, but the, the ECB, the English Cricket Board, is sort of doing their best now to try and turn that tide. More games on free-to-air TV. They're launching uh, the 100, which is the new sort of fairly controversial tournament that starts later this year in uh, in July, um, which is sort of all, all geared towards creating a new audience for the game and all this sort of thing. And there's sort of been a culture war raging within the county game. It's the, the sort of um, perceived betrayal of the county is the power grab by the ECB. Um, <laughs> whatever you make of it. Um, so yeah, it's it, it's. Uh, it, it, I think one of the one of the things that's important to say. You mentioned the sort of the fortunes of that white ball team. I think uh, that World Cup final was shown was was shown on free to air TV, and that was one of, that was the only game of the World Cup that was. But I think that that did probably um, remind people that there is a, a, a real there is a, a, a large number of people who have some level of interest in cricket, but just haven't been able to watch it and haven't followed it for a long time. And I think that was, it was a real shame from the ECB's point of view, the timing of the pandemic, because, you know, of course there are much worse things going on with, with COVID than uh, the sort of the, the interest in cricket within um, the UK. But um, I think the fact that they couldn't sort of build on uh, the momentum and the, uh, enthusiasm that had been garnered by that World Cup win in 2019, plus the ashes that followed. Um, it's definitely, a, 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 I think it, they'll, they'll feel it's a missed opportunity and they basically, as, as restrictions ease this summer, which is sort of touch wood going well so far compared to previous times and the vaccine continues to be rolled out. I think there's a sort of a, a desperation to try and get um, fans back engaged with the game and going to grounds and um, yeah, watching the game and trying to build and grow that audience. Yeah, I think, uh, again, and you unpacked it quite beautifully. I can go in multiple ways, but uh, I have just a standard follow-up here. So in India, again, IPL has become, you know, uh, the pulse of the nation, and there's always that ideological warfare between fans, you know, the <laughs> purists versus the new generation. So along those lines, uh, how important, according to you, is the health of the county cricket for to maintain or, you know, to further enhance publicity of whatever the cricket scene is in England. That's part one. And the other one is, you know, you already unpacked and if you can tie it in like cricket on telly, you, you think uh, maybe a cheaper paywall kind of a feature could be the future where, you know, you know, wherever, you know, ECB wants to take it. Uh, yeah. That's, that's well, a reality one day. 
Yeah, well, one, one of the things to um, to point out there is that um, actually sort of combining the two questions is that um, the county game has really benefited um, in the past even two or three years, really, a, a very recent thing from the um, sort of growth of um, online streaming. And basically all county cricket is now available free live on YouTube. Um, and that, that has been incredible for opening up the game, the, the standard of the quality of cameras and coverage has improved hugely um, sort of from the county's own media teams to the extent that you can uh, simply, you know, log on, search for, a, search for a game and happily sit back and watch the stream and without thinking that the, the camera quality is terrible or anything like that. It's it, it's actually pretty good. And I think, um, should I, fingers crossed, it'll keep, keep going that way to, to the extent that it gets towards um, TV standard. Um, and, you know, people consume the game in different ways now. So the, the fact that everything that happens in county cricket, there's now a clip on social media very, very quickly of, you know, someone taking an amazing catch or someone bowling an amazing ball or whatever it might be. Um, that stuff would have gone, been completely lost even a decade ago. But now it's it's extremely um, easily accessible. Um, and, and I think that's sort of, yeah, that, that idea of making um, cricket easy to consume uh, in bite-sized chunks and uh, catering to, to needs of people because, you know, while people do still sit down and watch TV in the evening, there are also people who, you know, go around town watching the game on their, their iPhone. Um, I think that's, yeah, I think that that's definitely going to be helpful. Um, personally, yeah, I think county cricket it will continue to be, to be vital over the next however long. It's kind of the, the foundation, the bedrock of the game. Um, it's where, where players come through. It's where, you know, uh, if you look at James Anderson or Stuart Broad or Ben Stokes or Morgan, they've all come through uh, county cricket. Um, and I, I don't particularly foresee that changing. Um, you know, you, you if you go and read the editor's notes from Wisden from 1925, there's people saying in there that, um, you know, county game is in decline. It's outdated 100 years ago. So it does have a, it's a stubborn thing. It does find a way to survive. Um, and I, I expect that will be the case in the future. I mean, the 100 this year is um, quite seminal in terms of the, the change of the domestic structure because it's the first time really um, in the men's game, at least, that a completely new set of teams are playing and that there's a domestic competition uh, between teams that aren't the 18 counties. Um, and there is definitely a line of thinking that would suggest that, you know, in 20 years' time, it'll be those those eight sort of, uh, test match grounds that will be hosting eight teams that play all competitions and counties will be some sort of amateur or semi-pro thing I don't particularly subscribe to that myself but um, I can see I can see the environment changing so that some counties only played one form of cricket um, one form of the game something along those lines but realistically I think you know they serve such an important um, role in developing players and I think that the counties completely understand that like you speak to directors of cricket and they'll always talk about their purpose is not only to entertain their fans and their members and sell tickets it's also to develop players for England and I think so long as that's the case I can't see it going anywhere. I think that's the integral part here I think I think you quite, quite nailed it so again pardon my lack of ignorance uh, or my ignorance not lack of ignorance my ignorance for the <laughs> English, English county scene uh, but in, in India you know like the pulse where I follow the cricket is like Kohli and you know like all, all the big names haven't really played a Ranji or a domestic game in ages, unless, you know, someone's mm. injured. And I mean, the calendar is so stacked. Uh, what is the situation in England with the likes of Root, uh, Broad, and, you know, some of the top names? How often can they make them available for county cricket? And uh, part B is, uh, growing up in 80s and 90s, you know, like some of our guys like Tendulkar, Azhar, you know, the big thing is someone got picked by Derbyshire or Yorkshire. Now it doesn't happen. India is kind of its own gated way, unless you're a Pajara, you go out and hone your skills, but most Indian players are busy with international duty, domestic or IPL. So what is the, again, two questions, one, I'm being greedy. What is the health of mm -hmm. the English players uh, playing in county cricket how, and how far that goes? And secondly, what's the, what's the international talent looking like in the county? if someone is not aware of the county scene? So, well, the first question, um, it, it does depend quite a lot on the player. But for example, um, this year, you know, Root has played, I think, four or five county championship games uh, for Yorkshire at the start of the season. Uh, Anderson's played a handful for Lancashire. Stuart Broad's played a handful for Nottinghamshire. 
uh, Mark Woods played for Durham, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, all the guys who haven't been involved in the IPL have been playing for their counties, um, which is great. Um, also, the guys that have come back from the IPL um, and haven't been selected for the New Zealand series will be playing, and the guys that have missed that. Um, so people like um, Butler and Bairstow and Sam Curran and Chris Wokes are all going to come back and play for their counties for actually the first time in a while because of how busy the calendar's been in a few of those cases. Um, but they will be playing a reasonable amount over the next few weeks, which is which is good, really, because you know the, the idea of you know someone like Josh Butler coming back and playing for Lancashire will sell a certain number of extra tickets and add a little bit of stardust to those uh, to those games. In terms of the overseas players, it's actually very good, I'd say. Um, it, the, there was a change to the regulations um, this year, which means that um, all all counties can play two overseas players rather than one um, in in all competitions. Um, so, for, you know, for example, uh, and not everyone has, and it's been quite difficult to get players over what with the the pandemic and travel restrictions and all that sort of thing. But you know, the game I was um, watching watching last week between Surrey and Middlesex, you had uh, Pete Hanscom, who's an Australia international, playing for uh, for Middlesex and captaining them, and then Surrey had uh, Hashim Amla, the former South Africa batsman, and uh, Kemar Roach, the West Indies fast bowler, playing. So there are still um, very good internationals. I think the big difference is that people will generally now come for a certain block of time, maybe two months, maybe a particular competition, maybe a, you know three weeks at the end of the season when a team needs a um, needs a few wins to to win a particular competition, something like that. Um, so you know previously you might have come over for six months, whereas now it's a much shorter period of time. Um, I think in terms of the India players. Coming over here, there's yeah, there's been the old one here and there. Um, Hanima Vihari played for Warwickshire at the start of the season. Uh, you mentioned Pujara. There's been, I think, Ishan Sharma played for Sussex a few years ago. Um, but yeah, it's probably fair that it is fewer and fewer. Um, the, the the interesting one at the moment is uh, in the hundred. The the ECB have been very keen to try and get some India players involved, and obviously the BCCI's uh, sort of general policy is that it doesn't uh, give the necessary no objection certificates to Indian players to play in overseas T20 leagues unless they've retired um, because, it, it, you know, to try and protect the primacy of the IPL. Um, what will be interesting to see is because uh, there are sort of various high-level discussions that have been going on between the ECB and the BCCI about scheduling and all this sort of thing, will uh, the involvement of some Indian men's players in the 100 be used as a sort of potential bargaining chip on either side um, because I'm sure that would make a, a huge difference to the competition. I mean, the, the ECB are talking about um, targeting a, a diverse audience and South Asian engagement and all this sort of thing. I mean, if you you don't even need Kohli. If you had any sort of major Indian player, anyone who's played for the national team, even semi-recently, even like, you know, a 40-year-old Yuvraj Singh, <laughs> that would definitely sell tickets and get people to the ground. Um so yeah, who knows? Watch the space, I suppose, on that one. Um, and a handful of a handful of Indian women players are um, scheduled to come over and play in that as well, um, which should be good as well. Yeah, star power is huge again. Uh, like the example of Yuvraj you just mentioned. So keeping that in mind, okay, I promise only one question at a, at a time. Now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is a, a star appeal of a Ben Stokes? So compared to any Ian Botham again, that's way before your time, but I'm sure mm-hmm. you've. You know, if uh, you can do a comparison, like compared to even other sports, like where do Butler and Stokes and Root rank uh, in the mainstream uh, English, you know, fandom? Well, it's interesting, actually. I was having a discussion with sort of a colleague the other day about who the the most recognisable current England player is or cricketer in general in the country. And we decided that it's probably Freddie Flintoff, despite the fact that he retired a number of years ago, just because of the fact he had this, you know amazing personality and he's a he's a tv personality now um and all this sort of thing so i think there is still definitely a a a slight block in that certain people just don't have any idea about cricket and you know i'm sure stokes does get stopped on the street here and there and ask for his autograph but i'm sure it's you know (laughs) compared to a coley for example it's um absolutely nothing and compared to what he gets in india even i'm sure it's um a pretty easy life I'd say it's interesting at the moment. There's, there's sort of various um, various England players with varying uh, degrees of recognisability or whatever um, 
within the game. I'd say there's a, a handful of probably Stokes, Archer, Butler, Morgan, Roots, who are uh, maybe Moeen and Adil Rashid as well, um, who, who are particularly recognisable and uh, well-known and have that that star power um, and, and have that brand. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think compared to someone like both or compared to someone like Flintoff, it's still a bit of a way behind just because of the fact that there has been that, uh, that block invisibility. I mean, there was a famous bit of research commissioned by the ECB a while ago where they were they asked a certain number of uh, school children to recognise certain figures and they they were sort of, um, I think, <laughs> woken up by how how much cricket's popularity had dipped because more people could recognise, more, I think it was 11 to 13 year olds or something like that could recognise um, John Cena than uh, Sir Alistair Cook, who was a test captain at the time. And I think that probably, probably goes to show uh, where cricket is in the UK right now. So Ashes still holds a key, I guess, huh? if, uh, if Freddie Flintoff is still the most iconic name for the last 20 years or so. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think it's, you know, it does change a bit now because, you know, people over here, some are engaged with the IPL, some are engaged with World Cup, some you can still do an amazing thing. And in England, India series, for example, and um, that'll get you recognised. But yeah, I think the Ashes does have that certain um, extra cachet or whatever you might say. Um, so yeah, I think, it, and that, that probably has helped Stokes, in fact, because he obviously played that famous innings two years ago at Headingley, which um, sort of cemented his reputation. And ditto someone like Archer, who um, bought that, that spell at Lords and, uh, yeah, hit Steve Smith on the head. <laughs> yeah, well, that was something anyway. Uh, <laughs> so the next question you can answer as a fan as well, if you choose to. So I, I only went to UK once and I did the Lords tour. And during the tour, uh, the gentleman who was, you know, explaining... Uh, the whole facility said, you know, uh, and there were a bunch of Indians like myself. So they, you guys don't mind, but you know, our imagination that's you know is still with the ashes. Like you know, uh, World Cup even comes second, and India, you know, playing India and beating India is good, but that comes a distant third. So as a <laughs> fan, has has that kind of sentiment changed? Where does like Kohli and men rank as an attraction for the English fan? It's a good question. I, I think. Um... I think there was probably a point in, in 2013, England played back-to-back Ashes series because it was sort of a quirk in the scheduling. And I think by that point, there was a huge amount of Ashes fatigue. Um, but it, it's an interesting question because I think England have been actually very dominant at home for a long time, but um, still pretty pretty dodgy away from home. Um, so I think with with both of those, I think England are almost quite used to beating Australia at home and almost quite used to beating India at home. Um, but I think in both cases, the, the idea of winning an away series in either country is huge. And I think currently, I think most England fans would sort of realise and admit that um, winning an away Ashes series is a lot more attainable than winning a, an away series in India. I think that, that was probably shown earlier this year when um, when England were, were beaten quite comprehensively in the M3-1, despite a, a very good performance in the first test. And I think, uh, yeah, India's win in Australia probably shows as well that Australia have certain vulnerabilities, even in their own conditions. So, um, yeah, it's a good question. I think um, I think if you ask the average fan at most English grounds, they would say they care more about winning the Ashes than beating India. But I think equally there's, um, there's a huge amount of realisation that India are the dominant force in world cricket right now. And that's uh, probably going to continue for a, a prolonged period of time. Sure. Again, and again, my, and my question, the answer I was looking was, has the uh, gap narrowed? Because I, I understand, that even as an Indian, yeah. the importance of ashes. I think it, I think it probably has, yeah, um, would, would be my hunch. Um, I, yeah, I think so. I think that the, the IPL and the explosion of the IPL, really, and uh, also England's acceptance of it, the appearance of England players in it um, over the past so many years, probably has, has boosted the profile of Indian cricketers in England, or at least that's my experience of it. You know, um, plenty of my, my friends who don't follow the game closely would have, you know, some idea who A.B. de Villiers and Virat are because of the fact that they've seen them back together for Royal Challenges Bangalore rather than because they've watched South Africa v India. Um, and, you know, personally, I think that's a good thing. And, yeah, I think it probably has closed the gap, yeah. All right. So, again, the next question is the uh, IPL in mind. Uh, mm-hmm. And England being, you know, the guardians of the, you know, of the game and, you know, for the longest time, MCC was seen as, you know, 
keeping the test tradition alive. Test cricket is really alive even now. But in India, you know, at least there's a divide among fans. Like I mentioned when we were prepping, you know, the purists versus the the new generation, which is, you know, IPL and even, you know, T20 cricket. So mm. what is the fandom in England? You know, if you want to look at with the younger generation, you know, uh, is there room for both formats or is there a preference for one over the other? Uh, what's your, again, I don't expect you to come up with stats if you don't have any, but what's your general sure, observation sure. regarding this? Uh, yeah, again, I, I think I think there will always be room for both. I think, um, you know, among my my uh, my my peers and my friends of sort of twenty somethings, I think there's certain people who would um, find a test match completely uninteresting and uh, much prefer to stick on the IPL and watch that for an hour. Um, and equally, I think there's people who you know the IPL leaves them numb and uh, they, they think there's nothing better than a, a, a you know old fashioned battle between. Uh, a batsman trying to defend for his life and a fast bowler trying to knock his head off so I think I, I my my personal opinion is that there will be room for both in, in the UK at least for a long time I think uh, on, a, on a global scale that's slightly different because people don't go and watch test cricket and anything like the numbers they do um, in the UK but it's it, it's a massive thing here people, you know people spend however much money um you know more than they would on a on a Premier League football match to go and watch a day of uh, Test cricket in the summer. They you know have some drinks, sit in the sun, chat with old friends, all that sort of thing. And um, I think that will continue for a long time. It's my personal opinion. Um, yeah, sure, I think you know T Twenty is is hugely popular as well. Um, but I'd be yeah I'd be very surprised if Test cricket in England dies out anytime soon. Um, I think it's yeah it's a much bigger concern and. Uh, the countries outside the sort of so-called big three, so India, Australia, and England. I think the the health of Test cricket anywhere else is not so good because it's very expensive to schedule. Um, and you know, even England, for example, are so reliant on um, on on broadcast revenue um, from Sky that that that's that plus ticket sales is what makes it um, commercially viable. But yeah, I think I think there's definitely room for both over here for a while yet. Yeah, I think it can be a very different conversation. I think eight or 10 years from now, like how many countries, you know, uh, are making, you know, ends meet with test mm. cricket. I hope it survives and there comes, there's a plan that's device, you know, you know, comes up with a plan, you know, ICC or someone that all parties stay relevant. But yeah, let's see. So mm. again, uh, we were talking uh, while I had the record button before that, that we are in the Freddie Wild, Ben Jones era, right? There's a new mm-hmm. mode of consumption and everybody's talking about stats and, you know, these fellows are doing a great job and you're not, you know, you're, you're a writer. I don't like how uh, stats is your strength, but uh, what is your medium, right? I know cricket Info probably gives you a free, free reign. What is a uh, what is Matt Roller style of uh, reporting? How do you want your audience to consume stuff? Is it a bit of reporting mixed with some opinion if it can be injected or uh, you think stats is where, the accurate depiction of the game lies. Uh, fire away, you know, floor is yours. I mean, I don't know which way you should lean, but your call. Well, it's a, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think um, personally, I, I would like to think that um, the, the, these things don't have to be binary. So personally, I think um, when I'm writing my best stuff, it generally involves some level of um, statistical analysis, but more to... Um, bring some added insight to um, the sort of the flavors that you get just from watching and taking it in with your eyes. Um, I think it's, I think it's very difficult to go sort of fully one way or the other. And I think even you know uh, guys you mentioned like Freddie and Ben would would say exactly the same thing that um, you know uh, as much as as much as um, you can get from stats, there's nothing and, and from analysis and uh, the, the, the most advanced data insights that are available I think there's nothing can ever be a substitute for, for watching a game with your own eyes and um, you know describing how it makes you and others feel and um, all that sort of thing and I think there's a there's there's definitely a I'd like to think that there's some kind of um, happy medium between the two that combines both and um, you know it gives you um, yeah it gives you that blend of of the extra insight that I think is available from um, from from the advances that have been made, but equally, um, yeah, from from that that flavour of 
the game and the day and the evening or whatever it might be. Um, so yeah, personally, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm count myself very lucky to write for um, Crick Info because, as you say, they do give me a, a, a broad um, sort of uh, free reign almost to do to to write how I want. Um, also, very lucky to have so many sort of global colleagues um, discuss the game with people who see the game very differently, people who have been, you know, um, brought up in a completely different country and environment, and their experience of cricket is is completely different to mine. And I think that's always useful to have those conversations. Um, but yeah, I think, I think uh, personally, yeah, I think I would I would consider myself to um, hopefully, especially in the case of T Twenty cricket, be able to use stats to help um, give give people a, a better and broader understanding of how the game is being played. Um, but equally, I think it, it, you know you can never you can never um, rely fully on that um, at, at the cost of um, yeah the, the the vibe and the idea and and the atmosphere and the environment and all that sort of thing um, so yeah that's a very long-winded answer but <laughs> no, no, and, I, and I think I, I'm with you even though I don't have the expertise like yourself but as a consumer of information I'm you know in awe of some of the stats but then I'll be honest I'll raise my hand quickly if I were to do a podcast on stats I'll be exposed so I stick to what I know a little bit mm-hmm. and I consumed you know uh, I learned to consume cricket with you know Tony Gregg and you know those kind of voices and Harsha Bhogle Sonil Gavaskar in India so you know when test cricketers are telling it it's a little different it's more about you know bravado pressure some of these cliches are you know finding its way out because the modern fan is way too educated so uh, do you pay attention to what happens on uh, cricket Twitter. I know, of course, you're busy. Mm-hmm. You're, not, you're writing articles, but they're like honestly, there's a lot of good analysis going on from uh, learned fans, and a lot of times they're questioning how the game's being fed, uh, especially on TV by the so-called experts. Of course, these experts have played 70, 800 test matches, but uh, this is again uh, an extension of the Ben Jones kind of question. You know, like there's uh, there are stats which are being overlooked, or I think are we doing? Uh, an over analysis here. I mean, do you get caught up in all that uh, when you see this kind of uh, rhetoric going around between fans? And <laughs> it's a good question. I think I, I, I definitely, you know, pay some attention to what's going on on my particular echo chamber on Twitter. Definitely. Um, but yeah, I think um, I'm trying to trying to sort of work out how to answer this. I think um, in terms of uh, Oh, <laughs> okay, let me even let me just... no, maybe maybe a question is you know I didn't do a good job there because <laughs> because tennis is my first love. I mean, cricket is sure, pretty sure. second, and in tennis, I'll you know a uh, lot of casual fans rely on John McEnroe. He's like mm. the Shane Vaughan in in some ways, you know, like he says whatever and people you know take it like gospel. But then there are people like <laughs> myself or like other who like watch tennis 46 weeks a year and they know like there's a, some Russian guy, some Hungarian guy coming up, blah, blah, blah. So McEnroe is just doing grand slams and he's, you know, catering to the main, uh, you know, the, the main popular avenue, you know, of, of, of that pool. But then there is a lot of like lack of preparation that people accuse him in the tennis circles. So I think that's what I'm trying to draw a comparison. I mean, Shoei Bakhtar is not doing commentary, but he has a YouTube channel. Yeah. Shane once sometimes says, you know, a lot of interesting things. But then, uh, you know, the the average, you know, uh, Twitter uh, an, uh, analyst sometimes is giving you more for the bargain. Of course, you know, he or she is only drawing like 3,000 people, may read their blogger, and and one is more global. So do you get caught up in that kind of, you know, or you think one, both are important because to a larger audience, you need a warn, even though a lot of stuff is rhetoric or, you know, it's not even applicable sometimes? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that, I think you you nailed it really there. I think um, no interesting comparison with tennis. I think def- definitely there's um, some people that um, are, are particularly well suited to a big occasion. And I think there's certain people that... Um, are much better at um, the sort of the quiet moments where they're allowed, to, you know, sort of able to to voice their analysis on a particular player or something like that, um, even within TV. And I think the the people I admire most are the people that, in terms of in terms of commentators and people who broadcasters work in TV, um, are the people that I think have a lot of those skills. So I'm thinking people like Nasser Hussein, uh, Michael Atherton, uh, Ian Bishop is a, is a particular favourite of mine. That, Great Western East fast bowler. He's um, probably even exceeded his um, 
his achievements on the on the pitch um, in the commentary box. So, um, but yeah, no, I think there's I think there's definitely room for both. I think it, it you know it would be a it would be a long slog to watch a full Test match with fully detailed technical analysis going on throughout. And equally, I think um, it would be a shame to to lose that. And I think the the best broadcasts are the ones that um, have some combination of the two. Um, sort of sort of similar to what I was saying about writing. I think um, with all of these things. Um, you know, I, I don't think it has to be a, a binary thing. I think the, the, the beauty of, um, you know, modern sport and how it's been democratised by social media and that sort of thing is um, that there is room for both. And I think it's been been proved and people can sort of um, tailor their, their enjoyment of the game and the way they follow the game through um, to, to, to the to the way to whichever they prefer of, of those. Um, so, yeah. No, very, very well said. So uh, let's uh, you know, transition this conversation to its closure next five, six minutes and we'll wrap it up. Uh, let's talk sure. about the upcoming India-England series. Again, I, you know, mm. to be a cardinal sin to leave that kind of questions out with you in the house. So uh-huh. for the listeners, give, give some preview. I know you wrote about uh, Matt Parkinson's, you know, is he the incumbent spinner England's been looking for? You think, uh, is this, this kind of a big series, the ideal place for him to be launched? Is he ready? I mean, fill the listeners in. Um, so, Parky is the, the first thing to say is that um, I, I don't think he will play in that series. Is my hunch. I think basically um, Jack Leach did did very well. I'm a big fan of his. Um, he did very well on England's tours to Sri Lanka and India in the spring, um, and he will be the, the frontline spinner at the start of this summer. England are playing uh, New Zealand in a couple of tests um, in in ten or ten days or ten days time. I think it is. Um, followed by the World Test Championship final between New Zealand and India, um, which is sort of mid mid uh, June, and then uh, yeah, much later in the summer we go into the the uh, England India series starting in uh, in early August. Um, yeah, I don't think Parkinson will play, but I think um, there's a there's a lot of uh, hype and interest around him at the moment because people love leg spinners, uh, people love the art and the craft of leg spin. Um, and uh, Parkinson has, has bowled some great balls this season, basically as much as anything. He's, um, he's, he's, he's more or less unique as a modern leg spinner because of how slowly he bowls the ball. Um, so I think his average speed is in the sort of, um, it's about 45 miles an hour, 50 miles an hour. So sort of, I guess that's the 70s kilometers an hour. Um, whereas most modern leg spinners would be around 50 to 55 to even 60 miles an hour. So pushing up towards 100 kph. Um, but he, he gets massive turn um, and he drifts the ball as well. Um, so he's, he's a very exciting young bowler. Um, I don't think he'll play this summer. Um, but he's definitely someone to to keep an eye on both both in Test cricket and in limited overs cricket um, because he's he's got a very good record with the white ball as well. Um, so yeah, I think yeah Parkinson probably too soon for him this summer. Um, but yeah, I mean more generally, I think that that should be a very interesting series, and I think India have um, as good a chance as ever um, to to um, pull off a, an away win. Yeah, we don't even know there'll be four tests or five tests because, as you said, the negotiations mm-hmm. are on. Uh, and what's the health report card looking for Archer and Stokes? I know you wrote about them. They're like the comebacks are already in place. So yeah, I, I think um, it's tricky. So uh, Stokes will—I I would be very surprised if he's not available for the first test. He's sort of expecting to um, play T20 cricket for Durham from mid-June onwards, I think, or, or maybe slightly later than that, um, depending on how things go. Archer is a much bigger question and a much more, uh, I can give you a much less definitive answer. All I know, all that's been told actually, the ECB have communicated sort of very little about it throughout, but um, confirmed that he'd had surgery on his elbow uh, on Friday and that elbow has been giving him some problem for the best part of 18 months now, which isn't hugely promising um, for a passport to be having sort of a, a an injury that seems to recur whenever he um, bowls long, long spells. Um, so, you know, it's it's very difficult um, to to give a realistic outlook. I think England will be hoping that he's fit again to play some part in that series. But equally, um, you know, this is a huge year of international cricket for England because straight after that series, they go to the T20 World Cup, 
Uh, and straight after that, they play an away Ashes series, which they've been targeting for a number of years. Um, so I think uh, it wouldn't be equally, it wouldn't be too surprising if uh, if Archer um, doesn't necessarily feature that prominently in the India series because of the fact that so much cricket's come later in the year. But yeah, to be honest, it's a complete unknown at this stage. Um, and yeah, we just have to have to cross our fingers and uh, hope he's still able to play um, Test cricket sort of regularly in the future because I think it would be a shame for him to be to be pigeonholed as just a T20 bowler or just a 50 over bowler in the future. And I think he he still wants to play in all three formats. So, um, you know, good luck to him. It's going to be tall task, I think, for all these fast bowlers to manage the schedule. But England does have the heaviest yeah. schedule this year. And yeah, that's right. I th- I think with yeah with fast bowlers, you know, there's you look at um, Anderson and Broad, who are sort of both, obviously Anderson's, I think, 38 now and Broad's three or four years younger. But um, I think with both of them, they've been able to extend their careers because of the fact that they've given up. They've hardly played white ball cricket in the past five or six years now um, and, and have been able to tailor their schedules. And it makes everything so much easier compared to someone like Archer or even Mark Wood, um, Chris Wokes, who, who try and play everything. And it's just so difficult because there's so much cricket and it's, you know, bowling, bowling 90 miles an hour does put a huge strain on people's bodies. Yeah, again, it's the hardest discipline, I think, in cricket. So, former Indian cricketer Arun Lal was on uh, a podcast I listened uh, earlier this week, the last cricket podcast, some of my friends host us. So, he was talking about the English series and, and he was talking about how these days batsmen don't get enough time because the pack calendars to get used to the foreign conditions. And uh, he used India's recent series against England, he said, if English were to return the favour in, in return of Frank Turner's, they gave us like seeming mm-hmm. decks, our guys will get bundled out. And for a minute, I believed it, which may happen. But then I was talking to a friend, he said, look, uh, they won't do it because uh, England will also struggle against the likes of, you know, uh, Bumrah, uh, Siraj and Shami and Ishant. So again, it's still two and a half months away. What kind of wickets <laughs> do you expect? I mean, it's going to be fair game anyway. The teams are kind of evenly stacked. But you think uh, we'll see a lot of green green tops and England well, take I, the chances? Yeah, I, I, I'd make one point there for a start, which is that um, India arrived for this tour that starts in the, sort of the first week of August so early because of the World Test Championship final that they do actually have a huge training block um, after that World Test Championship final against New Zealand in sort of mid to late June um, that, that should provide them with a lot of preparation for those conditions and way longer than you'd ever see normally on a, on a sort of uh, on a modern tour. Um, it, it's an interesting question. I mean, a lot of the time in England, um, the pitches do have a certain amount of grass on the top or whatever, but I think the overhead conditions are, are generally the, the more important and the more relevant bit. Um, and it's, it's very difficult to predict what the weather's going to be like and um, that far away because, you know, we had an okay weather in April and uh, since the start of May, it's been extremely wet. But this time last year, it was, um, you know, absolutely beautiful, hot sunshine while everyone was at home in lockdown. So, um, yeah, it's a really interesting one. The, the other point on that is that um, a lot of uh, chief executives at the, at the county clubs that host these test matches sort of, the, the, there's a sort of famous uh, idea of a chief executive's pitch, which is one that will make sure that the game goes into the final day so that, uh, you know, tickets for the last day don't have to be refunded and the people spend as much money in the club shop and the bar and the restaurants and all that sort of thing as possible. Um, so so whether or not um, that comes to fruition this summer in a marquee series where ticket prices are probably slightly higher, we'll, we'll wait and see. But um yeah, I don't know. I think I what I expect for the reasons that you say. I think I, I think it's unlikely that England will be <laughs> producing many ranked turners, given Ashwin and Jadeja will be in the India squad. But um, equally, I think there would be uh, it would be a huge risk to be uh, preparing these sort of green mambas or whatever, and uh, yeah, hoping that uh, your batsman's technique and uh, stand up against what is a, a, an extremely good uh, pace bowling attack that India have right now. Sure. All right, so last question, and uh, let's make it a little difficult, but again, you've probably answered this many times. Do, do you believe there's a thing called good pitch or bad pitch? Because a lot of talk when England were in India, and then a lot of people said, look, if you can't play on it, move on, because that's what Kohli and Shastri have been saying. We don't complain when we tour abroad. 
So what is your definition of good playing surface for a test match? Hmm. Uh, That's a very interesting question. Um, personally, I think that it's, uh, it's very important that there's some level of variety in pitches. I think it would, I think cricket would and test cricket would be an extremely dull game if, uh, if all pitches were exactly the same. Uh, I think personally, I would say that um, what you're generally looking for in a test match is for it to, you know, not be over within three days. So I think some of those pitches in India, for example, the, you know, the one in Ahmedabad where the game finished in two days, I think that was not a brilliant pitch. Um, but on the flip side, I think the, uh, you know, you have to have some level of variety. So you take the second test of that series where, you know, England were beaten heavily, but, and, and batting was very difficult, but, um, you know, Rohit Sharma had a brilliant hundred and proved that, uh, that this, you know, it's not impossible to bat on. It's just difficult to. Um, so I think there has to be some kind of variety in these things. I think the worst pitches are, are definitely not the ones that finish quickly and make, batting difficult I think they're the ones that um, are ball draws um, so there's no excitement in it for anyone I think a wicket that's incredibly flat so um, I remember England toured New Zealand a couple of years ago and had one incredibly dull draw where the scoring rate was very low throughout the game there was nothing in it for the bowlers um, and you know there was no way that we were ever going to see uh, 40 wickets fall across the the five days I think that is the worst type of pitch I think there needs to be some level of variety uh, and I think in English conditions the best sort of pitch is one that does a bit for the seamers on the first day then flattens out and is good for batting on the next two days and then starts to take a little bit of turn uh, and bring spinners into the game on days four and five but equally um, I think if everything was that prescriptive it would get boring and I think that yeah some level of uh, heterogeneity and variety among pitches is absolutely vital. No, and I couldn't agree more because that's the syrup I've been fed because, you know, that's the standard of pitches that some of the Indian fans too of my generation uh, talk about. But again, uh, thanks for the wonderful conversation. I hope I fielded some half volleys and these questions made sense. <laughs> and hopefully more people will tune in to listen because you were on the show. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me, Sakiba. I enjoyed it. <laughs>